Welcome to Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History has marked its first anniversary earlier this September. As we head into our second year, I'd like to give a shout out to our listeners, not just in Maine and New England, but in almost every state. Get it together, Idaho. Is this a potato growing related rivalry? You won already. Also, we've had listeners in at least 20 countries around the world, including Spain, India, Bangladesh, and most recently, at least one listener tuning in from the Isle of Man. We love you, Manx. It's great to know we've got fans who are born and raised Mainers, who are from away, and of course, some who have yet to visit. To help the fandom spread, please leave a rating or review on whatever platform you download this show from. It helps more potential listeners find us quickly in the messy world of online search algorithms. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Mainly History. Not Instagram, though, as we are leaving that platform to dedicated lovers of arts, crafts, and pets. Today's episode takes a look at possibly the most influential main author most people haven't heard of, John Neal. Between his birth and burial in Portland, Neal spent much of his life and literary career in the city, penning novels, short stories, and plays, editing journals of literary criticism, and advocating for causes ranging from women's rights to anti-slavery to curbing male aggression through the construction of gymnasiums. He was also a major voice in debates over national and regional character in the 19th century, driving conversations over the New England Yankee identity. Neil was also a trailblazer in writing dialogue to read how everyday people really spoke, including curse words. So, this episode has a language advisory. For accuracy, my profanity and my appreciation for the wide world of mainly history fandom will not be bleeped out. So let's do this. My guest today is Carrie Holt, Associate Professor of English at Utah State University. Carrie specializes in 18th and 19th century American literature. She's the author of Reading These United States, Federal Literacy in the Early Republic, and the co-editor of Mapping Region in Early American Writing. Carrie, welcome to Mainly History. It's great to be here. Most many people have not heard of John Neal. Who was this guy? So John Neal is one of, I think, the, the great underrepresented writers of, of early America. He had an incredibly long career. Uh, you know, he was born in the 1790s and he didn't die until the uh, 1870s. So he spanned the Civil War. He was there sort of right after the revolution. Um, he was born in Maine, born in Portland. And uh, came from a Quaker family, although later the Quakers disavowed him because he was kind of a raucous troublemaker. He was he was a tough guy to get along with, John Neal. But he's also sort of one of the most innovative and um, just sort of out there writers of early America. He started out, um, he eventually, you know, self-educated, became a lawyer, but then decided he wanted to 
sort of jump on the train of trying to create this American literature. That was sort of his call to being. So he moved to Baltimore and got involved with the literary circles there. And uh, he was really, he thought people were not giving American literature the appreciation it deserved. So he kept writing these magazine articles saying, we need to create an American literature. And a lot of other writers were doing this too, but Neil sort of came to the fore with the lead on this. And so he eventually decided he was going to go to England and write about American literature there and try to get the Europeans to pay attention. So it, this sounds counterintuitive. Like yeah. I need to write about America. I'm leaving. <laughs> So yeah, and this is how Neil does things. Neil just does things sort of, he doesn't follow convention. This is sort of the thing that marks all of his work. So he goes to England and he writes for this very famous magazine, Blackwoods, which was known for its literary criticism. And Blackwoods was known for, you know, casting shade at American writers and saying, you know, they're not worth it. They're all just derivative. And actually Neil jumped on that train and he's like, yeah, a lot of our writers are derivative. We, he said, we need more original American voices. You know, even Irving, you know, he's becoming too European and Cooper's too European. So he kept driving this call for this inherently American literature. So he comes back and decides he's going to be the one to sort of work on creating this. But he's offended a lot of people because he said, oh, these American writers are too British. So people were really mad when he got back and he was going to go to New York, but he decided to go home for a little bit to Portland. So he went home and everyone was mad at him. So he decided, well, I need to and answer everyone. Can I ask, did their rage mm-hmm. include, did they, were they annoyed at him also for saying, yeah, American literature is too British from England, no less, like where yeah. he left to do this. Was that part of the like grievance against him? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that, okay. you know, that was, why did you go there? And they, for all about America, why did you leave? So he decides he needs to stay in Portland and answer. He's like, well, I got to tell people what I'm really about. And then he never leaves Portland. He sort of falls back in love with Portland and with Maine and decides that's the best place actually to create an American literature is one that's really rooted in localities, very specific localities, and to represent these localities. So, you know, he starts, he creates a bunch of a really famous magazine called The Yankee that he writes in. And this is sort of becomes his platform for talking about this sort of regional based view of creating a national literature. And then he just continues, he's extremely prolific. He writes like a fiend constantly and he's getting in, in fights and he's doing all these other things. So, um, he's also known as the founding father of American fitness. He starts Uh-oh. all these gyms that he builds and uh, and he gets, he becomes also a very big political activist. He's a strong proponent of women's rights, uh, women's rights to vote, abolitionist. He became just really involved. He was a critique of Jackson, very politically active over his career. But again, the regionalism and the being based in Portland was really important to him. I believe he's actually, I think he's buried in the Western Cemetery in Portland. Oh, is he? Which, Yes. I wish that I had known this when I I used to go running like right by there. And I would, you know, you can see some of these particularly prominent families, you know, graves and such. I didn't know who Neil was the last time I lived in Portland. But uh, yeah, the Western Cemetery has a lot of has a lot of like 19th century kind of big deals living in it. Wow. Sorry. Buried in it. (laughs) (laughs) We should also give him a, a shout out to isn't he He's often pointed out as being one of the first writers to use a lot of conversational, colloquial styles in his writing, right? Like trying to capture how people actually talked. Yes. And this is sort of, there's two things, actually three things that that Neil's really known for. One is, again, the use of language, colloquial language, dialogue. Two is breaking with convention. He loved to sort of draw on a lot of early American writing is really 
relies heavily on these conventions and he likes to put them out there and then break them and run all over them and like transform them around. And then the third thing he's known for uh, is because he's doing breaking convention and doing a lot of sort of dialect and conversation and vernacular, sometimes he's kind of hard to read. <laughs> His, he goes on and on for very, very long periods of time. But that's sort of part of the effect he was going for. And this is where he was saying, you know, this is an American style. One of his uh, most famous novels, which is Brother Jonathan, he's got these wonderful long conversations with dialogue. And he'll often put the diacritical marks in some of these so you can see how people were pronouncing or, or try to hear it. He tried to represent it visually. He's got this amazing scene where um, there's a bunch of drunk guys trying to talk and he tries to capture, he puts the hiccups in there and he puts them mispronouncing words and forgetting words. And so he really tried to emphasize this conversational style that was sort of this New England voice, he thought, or even more specific that people in Maine talk differently than people in Boston. This is one of the things that other people continued with, right? Like in other regions of the country as well, trying to capture this kind of regionalism or dialect. Yeah, so he sort of kicks it off. And then starting again in the 1830s, um, sort of it's often known as the Southwest humor tradition. You start to see these sort of tall tales coming out of Georgia, and those start to use more dialect. But Neil's sort of the, the first that starts to do it with, um, again, New England, where you don't often see as much attention. There was a, a big emphasis in New England of, you know, we are, especially out of the bot, the Boston group, you know, we are sophisticated, we are eloquent we don't speak with dialect. And Neil said, no, we do. And this is sort of why Neil isn't as well known as people like Hawthorne or Longfellow or Whittier, who used that more formal style. Some people uh, were worried that representing New England in that way would cause people to dismiss it. That does make me ask, because in many 19th century novels, accents and dialect are usually used to refer to lower class people of whatever race. And it is well-spoken, heroic, virtuous people who speak without accent. And yeah, Neil, this is something that he was really, this again goes with his, let's push against convention and try to, so he said, this is a valuable way to represent. We don't need to look at that. We need to look at this with pride, not with something that is to, to look down on. And he did it across the board. This is interesting in his, you know, he presents people from a lot of different classes, different racial backgrounds in his books. And everyone's got a dialect, everyone's got a vernacular. And he says, this is a function of where you live, not so much just, you know, what kind of person you are. So let's talk a bit more about this regional identity. Definitely in the 19th century, especially after 1815, a lot of scholars have pointed out that the sort of cultural momentum and certainly the political power was really moving in many ways, South and West. And so like a lot of Foreigners, when they thought of Americans, they would think, oh, Georgia, Davy Crockett in Tennessee, right? Tall Tales, Mike Fink, that kind of stuff. And like the new American man, and it was almost always a man, was a, a Southerner or Westerner doing manly man things on a frontier, right? So Neil, though, is, is known in part for his reflection of New England regional identity. What then was this New Englander or New Englanders, plural, that Neil was highlighting in his writing? So yeah, and Neil, Neil's emphasis always in all of his work is not to define things in these essential ways. So he was really actually suspicious of thinking about regions as just one thing. 
And he was getting increasingly worried, as you mentioned, you know, we're getting this, this Southern identity that's emerging, this Western identity. And the East Coast, particularly New England, was sort of being represented as the standard. And the other ones are the region. We are the nation, and that's the region. And so he was sort of wanting to remind New England that we're not just one sort of monolithic thing. There's a lot of differences here. And he was really drawn with Maine because he felt that Maine had always been marginalized in a way, you know, broken off from Massachusetts, sort of always treated as this lesser part of New England, which he both wanted to contest and say Maine is also awesome, but then say that part of the reason we're awesome is because we're different from the rest of New England. So always trying to represent a New England identity, but always complicated. So something that he does, something I love. So he starts this magazine, The Yankee. And the way he represents New England there is he starts to, he's got a series where he says, look, here are traditions of Maine. I think I was going to look at, it's called, yeah, Live Yankees is this series. And then he has one called New England as it was and New England as it is. So he goes on and he describes all these traditions. And he writes this long piece on a tradition called the husking, which was a gathering, you know, with harvest. And he describes the games that would be played. He has this lengthy description of a game called Break the Pope's Neck. And he talks about the food and all of this. And then he gets all these letters from other people in Maine. And they're like, that's not how you do a husking. And he publishes these letters and you get this big explosion of different perspectives, all from the same region saying, no, no, at a husking, you play a game called the buttons. And he's like, no, no one eats anything at a husking. Or how can you say you eat bean porridge there? Like, that's not how it's done. So you get all these competing perspectives, all about the same tradition, but that it's very diverse. And I like to talk about that example, because I think this is sort of how he wanted people to perceive regions, that you don't essentialize them. They have things that are specific to those regions, but there's always differences in them. And they're always things that change over time. So he's got this regionalism that gets very complicated because you can't always type it or define it in a way. And he thought that was a valuable way to understand regions. That said, his best known novel, as you mentioned, Brother Jonathan, the full title is Brother Jonathan or The New Englanders. And so clearly, besides Jonathan Peters, the named protagonist of this novel, the New Englanders themselves are a major study of this book. Even within that variation, how does he portray New Englanders? Are they, are they contrasted with Southerners or Westerners, or for that matter, maybe with city folk or, or, or somebody else? How do New Englanders come across in however many versions he, he, he paints them? That's such a good question. And yeah, and there are some sort of commonalities. And one of them is, and again, this goes back to his dialect thing. For him, New Englanders have a lot to say. They talk and talk and talk. And that's, that is important. That not so much what they're, that they're saying things that are a specific topic, but that they just like to talk. They talk to everyone. They talk at length. They've got particularly regional ways of speaking and that conversation is really important. So that conversational bit is really important to him. Also that they're contrary, like they push back, they argue. There's always arguments in Neil's work. And he really defines that as, okay, this is some, unlike Southerners where there's a perception that, you know, they try to get along, they're friendly. They might be nice up front, but then not. He's like, no, New Englanders are just upfront about having conversations, having disagreements. And then also being open. That's another thing is listening listening that that's part of the, the conversation thing. So for him, the, the core New England bit is always coming back to lots of talk, lots of listening, lots of disagreements, but still lots of, you still keep talking even when you disagree. If you read the opening chapter of Brother Jonathan, where they're introducing him, it's the residents of this town trying to figure him out. 
and he shows up in this place and every, everybody's saying, what's your deal, basically. And he tells them all a different story or he, he makes something up. And then people kind of shrug and, and move on their way. And then they'll have more arguments or debates or discussions with him. And they decide like he's interesting. And then he'll, he basically argues his way into, <laughs> into the hearts of his neighbors, um, <laughs> which not to get into too much essentialism, but in some parts of the country, like, yeah, like in South Carolina, probably would have gotten him just run out of town. Because uh, people would have said, you know, like, seriously, what are you doing here? And you seem like an annoying, obnoxious jerk. We don't know if we can trust you. Get out. Yeah. You know? Or maybe somebody would have punched him or, or challenged him to a fight. And so we can get into the presence or absence of violence into his stories. Because I know Neil, one of his, the, the themes in his life was he was worried about men's violent tendencies, which is why he started all these gymnasiums. But he also didn't like dueling, which was something that he did share with most New Englanders compared to Westerners and Southerners. Yeah, and his first novel, a novel called, it's got a great title, Keep Cool, is all about, you know, trying to argue against dueling and, and fighting. And yeah, and he, he had a really aggressive temper and he could be very aggressive in his writing. And uh, again, like you said, he starts all these gyms as a way. He's like, people need to have a way to work off their energy so they don't get into fights. And that there, there was a difference between fighting in, in language and in conversation than, you know, having that resort to actual violence. He thought words were a better place because again, you could listen, you could respond and rather than turning to, to fisticuffs or, or guns. So I was hoping we could talk a bit more about the person of brother Jonathan, because the name brother Jonathan had its origins in the 18th century and refers to kind of a, a caricature who is one of the precursors to uncle Sam in certain early Republic prints and illustrations. We can even see New England and occasionally the United States portrayed as Brother Jonathan, this oftentimes Connecticut or New England person who is kind of thin. He's kind of plucky. There's even this one portrayal, at least of him punching a, a Brit during the War of 1812, taking it to the enemy kind of things. And so John Neal, by naming his protagonist brother Jonathan, or the New Englanders in 1825, is clearly aware of all of this. He, he can't ignore it. So could you tell us a bit more about Jonathan Peters, the protagonist of this novel, and how he either was complicating or extending out this sort of portrayal of the prototypical New Englander? So yeah, and this was good to hear because I hadn't known about, I'm really, I want to go looking for these images of brother Jonathan because I knew he was a type. Like, yeah, he's very much seen as sort of this, this American type. And John Neal, one of his things is he takes conventions and he plays with them and transforms them. So Brother Jonathan, uh, when you title something Brother Jonathan, it's coming with all those expectations of, you know, here's this stock sort of American character. And it tells the story actually of this young man, Walter Harwood, who thinks he has a father who had, you know, fought in the revolution. He thinks he's got this sort of straight up sort of pedigree. And then he discovers that uh, that's not his real father. So he goes in search of his real father. And this becomes the brother, Jonathan. This becomes Jonathan Peters, who he eventually finds. It's a very long book, though. It's like three volumes. It, John Neal goes on and on, as I said, all the conversations. But you eventually find out that this man who he discovers as his father is half Indian. And Neal often would work with a lot of his novels have these characters that are mixed race. 
And that becomes sort of the origin. And Neil was very sympathetic. And he felt that the native people in in New England and throughout the US were, were being oppressed. He was very against westward expansion, the manifest destiny, Indian removal. He wrote about all of these things. But this was a way in which he takes this stock character that's supposed to be the American. And he says, well, now look, this is someone who has origins in the indigenous communities. This is who the father, and he has to sort of come to terms with the fact that this mixed race man, this new brother, Jonathan, isn't the brother Jonathan he thought he was. So there's Neil sort of taking a a convention and trying to rewrite it in a way that allows for these other perspectives or these more complicated origins for the nation to come in. In terms of other ideas or stereotypes that he challenges or plays out, one of the fixtures in many Americans' ideas about New Englanders when Neil is writing in the 18-teens and 20s and 30s is the Yankee peddler, the traveling salesperson who's selling pots and tools and things and they haggle, kind of a skin flint, sometimes has the flavor of like uh, a kind of, to, to, to modern audiences, maybe a kind of shady used car salesperson or something like that. So does the Yankee peddler or the New England peddler make appearances in Neil's works, which I have not read nearly as much of as you have? Yeah, there's always this sort of salesman type figure And it appears there's one in, he's got a novel called Logan. And I know there's one who shows up there, but what's interesting about Neil is he takes sort of that peddler idea and he adapts it to other professions. So something, this goes back to sort of what, what's Yankee for Neil. And it's this idea of you tell stories, you create things, you use language to sort of create these different identities. So he'll have these peddler figures who show up. He'll also do this a lot with lawyers. He has this novel called Rachel Dyer that's about the Salem witch trials. And it's focusing on uh, a lawyer who's trying to defend one of the women who's been accused of witchcraft. And this guy just talks. He talks and talks and talks. They've got these, again, these extended, this is another novel that's really known for just giving these constant conversations. But again, we see this idea of, again, and he's a lawyer, he's trying to make a case. He's trying to sell a particular story to represent things in one way. And that's one where you often see that it's been argued that, you know, here's an adaptation of that stereotype of, you know, here's the peddler who's trying to sell goods. Well, here's the lawyer doing it. And on the one hand, he's kind of, you know, typical lawyer satire, like he's just telling stories. But Neil tries to present this as, no, 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 this is a virtue. This is a way of using language that's a particular type that, again, you can't trust, but that there's a value to being able to use language in this way. And in um, his magazine, The Yankee, he often will talk about that being, uh, again, this feature of people in, in Maine know how to tell these stories and to present them, to perform an identity to get what they want, to get an outcome. And that that's the regional characteristic, being able to perform to get something. In this period of the sort of peak Neil writing, did he seem to be trying to, even while he's complicating or sort of challenging caricatures, did he seem to be trying to defend New Englanders or Yankees from what he perceived to be unfair slanders or negative characterizations? Especially, we should point out, you could argue that between about 1815 and closer to the American Civil War uh, was probably when New England as a region was most politically marginalized and peripheral. Yes, Boston was still a sort of engine of, of cultural power, and there were Yankees who made a lot of money, 
But politically speaking, and in some ways culturally, in terms of popular culture, New England was, was pretty marginalized for, for the, the heart of Neil's career. So was he being defensive of Mainers and New Englanders? He was. But the problem was that his way of defending Mainers and New Englanders often didn't make other people happy. So because, yeah, he had this again, he was trying to, but like I was mentioning, you know, he was trying to make a virtue. like, it's good that we know how to pretend and tell these stories, you know, even if they're not true. He was trying to type that as a value. And some people took great offense, like, don't represent us that way. Or don't represent us with these dialects. Like, we don't like it. That makes us look bad. He was really trying to sort of change cultural norms with how people were going to, what they were going to accept and value about New England. So he would be very defensive, but some people thought that what he was doing was causing more harm than good. He was good friends with Longfellow and Longfellow would sometimes write to him and be like, don't be so aggressive or, you know, or he also talked about himself a lot. And they said like, don't just talk about yourself. You need to talk about, about other people or, you know, present a more conventional portrait that would seem more conventionally positive. And that was, that was difficult. Although toward the end of his life, he had another, um, and I was just looking up, yeah, he has a magazine that he starts up again that then eventually becomes a book called Portland Illustrated. And that was one where he becomes much more celebratory and trying to be, again, more, more positive and maybe a little bit more conventional in the way that he was representing New England. But for the most part, you know, he thought he was really coming out to, to show the glories of New England, but what he thought were the glories of New England weren't always what other people wanted them to be. That's a fair point, especially considering there were large numbers of Americans who did not want to hear that women should have more rights or that slavery was bad or that they should moderate their drinking or perhaps stop altogether or that they shouldn't take indigenous land. These are not (laughs) super popular selling points in the 1820s and 30s in a lot of parts of the United States. He was definitely a rebel. And I think in later years, there was more appreciation for that. And especially he was not considered because, again, he wasn't part of the the very formal and easily respected Longfellow, Hawthorne, this crew, Whittier. But it's only been actually really in the last 15, 20 years that even literary scholars have been paying more attention to John Neal and being like, wow, this guy was a revolutionary in a lot of ways. Speaking of... Neil and other literary giants, as well as defending New England's reputation. Did he have any responses that you know of to Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which, as you well know, maybe our audience does not, was full of negative New England stereotypes surrounding the person of Ichabod Crane? Yes. So he had some strong opinions about Irving. And this largely came out when he went to England. This is when uh, he was starting to sort of notice um, Irving's work. And he criticized Irving for being too European. He said, you have adopted European standards. And again, that sneering at New England sort of regionalism. He thought that he was trying to sort of reach too much to be a, a European writer, that he wasn't sort of working with the, the regionalism. Even though, you know, Irving, Irving's pretty regional. (laughs) Yeah, like when you, it's very much, if you read Legend of Sleepy Hollow, besides being, you know, it's now portrayed as this like spooky story, but a lot of it really is about this town of New Yorkers who is just getting rid of this obnoxious New England teacher who like blows into town and reads Cotton Mather to them and bores them to death. And then tries to date one of the 
the pillars of the, the town's family's uh, daughters, not because she's beautiful, but because she has a lot of money. So it's just this greedy, obnoxious, ill-mannered, up-jumped, wandering New Englander who then the town conveniently gets rid of because Brom Bones, you know, scares him off. And so like all these later versions of the story for, you know, Halloween and stuff, those are all well and good, but they totally miss out on the fact that this is partly just like good Hudson River Valley folk getting rid of some obnoxious Yankee. So yeah, and again, he felt that that Irving was not a true American writer. He Mm. thought that Irving was striving for standards that would please European audiences and that were drawing on European perspectives on you know, the United States, and that he wasn't sort of there in the weeds. And he had the same critique of James Fenimore Cooper. He went after Mm. Cooper also. And and Cooper and Irving were sort of the two shining stars in the 1820s of, you know, here's this emergent American literature. And for Neil, he said, no, they're not American. They're catering to European styles and European audiences. You mentioned that that Neil was very vocal in his advocacy for uh, for women's rights uh, by 19th century standards. And so a lot of these regional essentialisms deal with men and and often usually white men in in 19th century American literature. What role did New England women play in Neil's depiction of the region and its various cultural types? Were New England women somehow special or different or whatever than say, you know, Southern women, Western women? And this is something that's interesting because again, he was a very strong advocate for women's rights, for women's right to vote. Although women don't always play a central role in his own works, with the exception of Rachel Dyer, which is the one he writes about with the Salem Witch Trials. And there again, the women are bolder, you know, they they play a role, they have things to say. And again, his women, his women characters are vocal and they're part of the conversation. He includes them. They're part of the community. But he doesn't really have as strong, although he does at the end of his life, he writes a novel in 1859 called True Womanhood. And this is one I, I haven't read. Uh, and again, it's sort of one that is often typed as uh, he'd sent this one to Longfellow and Long's like, that's a, that's a long one. But he does talk about this. He was in close conversation for much of his life with Margaret Fuller. And they would talk about the uh, women's issues. I'm going to have to ask rights. for our audience, who was Margaret Fuller? So Margaret Fuller, she was part of the Transcendentalist crew, ran around with Thoreau Emerson. She was a prominent feminist, early feminist. She had a very famous magazine called The Dial that she edited. And she was sort of a leading literary voice for women's rights and just sort of women as literary figures. And Neil was very supportive. And he was also very supportive of women writers in the Yankee. He would often review and promote women writers, none of whom the ones he was promoting sort of ever really gained a lot of fame. But he was a strong advocate for women's writers and used his magazine. So he was more invested in um, sort of promoting other women writers. He gave some very famous speeches prior to the Seneca Falls, which is the big women's rights convention where Elizabeth Cady Stanton and company get going. But he was more sort of a supporter of women's rights in the in the political arena, arena and a supporter of other writers than it, that it was something that he pursued as much in his earlier fiction, which is what what I know well. Again, he did have this novel later, but I don't don't know that one. I focus more on the the eighteen. 20s and 30s stuff. So it was during the 1820s that he edits and publishes the Yankee, the journal out of Portland in Mm -hmm. Maine. What did he hope to achieve in the pages of the Yankee? What was this journal? It didn't last that long, but it left a mark. Yeah, it was about two years that it lasted. And again, his goal there was, this is where he said, okay, I want to support an American national literature, but the way to do that 
is to make sure you are supporting a regional literature. So he really wanted this to be sort of the voice of Maine and a representation of Maine. And again, that's where he would often write about holidays, foods, language he would write about, the different ways of saying it. He used a lot of colloquial phrases, local phrases, and just very informal. A strategy he had, this was an unusual magazine where he would publish works by other people. And then at the end of it, he'd sort of have his own annotations where he'd be responding to the things that other people had said. So again, there's him wanting to say like, look, what we do here is we talk about things. We have a conversation. He didn't like things to stand alone or he'd publish an article and then he'd publish all the letters he got in response to it to keep that conversation going. So it's a, it's a unique magazine because of that emphasis on conversation and that no, no opinion or view stands on its own. It's always part of a larger discussion. We should point out that his use of the title Yankee for his journal is significant in and of itself because that was a term that was also coming into much greater use around the time his career took off by 1820 or so, where originally a Yankee was somebody from Connecticut, and then it sort of gradually snowballed and it was in really in a big way in the 1820s that people in the United States started calling people from New England Yankees and then had these qualities that we've been we've been talking about. And yeah, and it's a it's a term that sort of it's its original origins aren't aren't always well known. It's just sort of became into an increasingly common use. Although um Neil is unique for trying to then sort of bring it up to Maine. Again, he was always sort of a little antsy about, well, why is Maine always seen as sort of on the margins of New England? We too are a part. So he wanted to be a part of this sort of bigger culture while also questioning it all the time and saying, look, there's not just one Yankee scene. And you, he'd often refer to sort of the, the Boston area as the hub. And that was where, you know, he was worried that that was sort of taking over and dictating what the identity of a Yankee was going to be. So by naming this magazine that was up in Maine, the Yankee laying claim to we're a part of New England, but also New England isn't always what you think it is. It's not this urban Bostonian Massachusetts based. It's got this other sort of wider history and wider collection of customs. He wanted the public to recognize there was more to it than just Massachusetts. I'm glad you bring this up because something that I think that a lot of discussions of 19th century New England identity and Yankeedom, and then even into the 20th century, it's very, despite the fact that you're talking about, he was worried that Boston was the hub. A lot of these caricatures, they're very rural, native-born white. And Joe Conforti has has a great book about this, Imagining New England, Mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about sort of New England regional identity, both internally and externally throughout U.S. history. So I was wondering, what did Neil think about the urbanization of Boston and then parts of Rhode Island and elsewhere in New England and beginning in a big way in the 1840s with the large scale arrival of Catholic immigrants to Boston and southern New England and places like Portland as well, where we should point out New England was up until at least the Civil War, the most Protestant area of the country. And it was then by the 20th century and the 21st, Boston and Rhode Island and Connecticut, I believe they have the highest percentage of Catholics of any states in the U.S. And that would have, of course, caused the 17th century Puritans to just absolutely have a a conniption. (laughs) And it's kind of ironic there. 
What did Neil think about immigration and the, the rise of, the, of cities and industry in New England in his lifetime? He, Neil was always very pro, like the more different views and perspectives we've got going on, the better. So he was very much uh, embraced like heterogeneity is is where it's at. And as to, you know, it's, it, I'm I'm curious about the, the Catholic issue because I don't know if he ever wrote specifically about sort of Catholicism, but I do know that he was always, we include everyone. That's the way it should be. Later in his life, he was also, you know, very much um, an urban planner. Later in his life, he got very into architecture and just how to plan and improve the city streets, the sidewalks in Portland. He was very much about, you know, we need to turn this into a first class city that is, you know, clean and safe. And that this is something that it should involve the community. This was something that was definitely on his mind, but it was always, we include everyone. And I remember going back to his gyms, one of the gyms that he had been involved with decided that they weren't going to allow black men to come to the gym. And he resigned from that gym because he said, you know, we need to include everyone. And even um, he has this wonderful article about sympathetic gymnastics. So women were not allowed to come to these gyms. And he said, well, women should have access to this as well. And he wanted to build these upper balconies where women could come and watch men working in the gym because he thought they would benefit from just seeing it. You know, he, he said, OK, there's some propriety issues with men and women working out together, but they should still be included so they can see these benefits and maybe find ways to do it on their own. So he was always on the side of inclusion and the more differences, the better. Did he want there to be fitness places for women, too? He didn't ever go that far. That was, you know, uh, that, yeah, gender, gender, but he, he went farther than others by uh, saying, you know, women can come. And there was this idea of if you can sympathize and sort of mm-hmm. experience the sentiments that that would still be beneficial. So were these women in the, in the balconies in his mind, were they supposed to be there sort of going like, good job, guys, don't fight, do more pushups. <laughs> like what? Like, is that, or were they supposed to look at those guys and be like, Ooh, look at them doing all those chin-ups. That just makes me want to be a better human. Where does this, I'm trying to figure out what he thought was going to happen from this. It's a little, it's a little bit strange, but the idea that, you know, you could witness this and you could see that there'd be a benefit from seeing someone else be able to get activity that they didn't have access to. Hmm. And that that would be, um, and again, just creating a sense of, I think he saw that as a first step. Like if we can get women in to sort of appreciate this, we'll eventually get to a point. But yeah, he was always all about inclusion. There are many days when I find it way easier to just bear witness to somebody else working out (laughs) than to actually do it myself. So next time I just skip a workout and I just sit around, I'll be like, no, no, John Neal wanted this. This is fine. I'm building my character. I'm bearing witness to you. you." Got to go to this. I always call it the sympathy gym. I was like, yeah, I'd (laughs) much rather go to the sympathy gym than the actual gym. (laughs) Okay. You talked about how he interacted with a lot of these big, uh, these big writers. And so one of the terms that John Neal is associated with as a, as a inspiration for is the American Renaissance. And for those of us who are not professors of uh, American literature, this, this might not be familiar. So obviously this is not the Renaissance, like with, you know, Italy and Leonardo da Vinci and all the rest of that stuff. But so the American Renaissance, when does this happen and what does it refer to? So yeah, the American Renaissance is a term that's used to describe sort of when American literature comes into its own and it becomes famous. So this is the 1830s, 1840s, more toward the 1840s. The writers associated with this are Hawthorne, Melville, you know, the classics, Emerson, 
Thoreau. And for a long time, when people were studying American literature, they'd start with the Puritans and sort of that initial point, and then they'd sort of skip over everything. And they're like, American literature didn't really start, you know, a little bit with Cooper and Irving, but it, it really comes to a renaissance and becomes a fine art. Edgar Allan Poe part of this as well? Poe's, Poe's a part of this, yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay. John Neal, he's not remembered as having any major novels on the scale of Moby Dick or anything like that, but he was an instigator, an inspiration. Is that your your take on this? Yeah. So Neal, again, was a, a literary critic. And again, he was writing those, he'd write a lot of reviews of Americans, a lot of them were critical saying, oh, they're being like Europeans. But there were a few writers and he was very instrumental in sort of drawing attention to Poe. And uh, he was also very instrumental, his, his style of criticism of not just sort of praising Americans because they were Americans. Poe really adopted that style in his own criticism when he was working for the Southern Literary Messenger. So Neil was very much an influence on Poe and very helpful in sort of discovering who he was. He was also, you know, praised Hawthorne's work. Again, Longfellow and Whittier, he was very much in praise of these writers who would become a part of what would be known as the American Renaissance. Though Neil himself was not uh, for a long time considered a part of this, because again, his writing was considered much more crude, much more uneven. That dialect was not considered a, a fine art at the time. Again, this has all been reconsidered in the last 20 years or so. But he did play a role in sort of helping to discover and promote these writers that became very famous. And I got to ask, especially since he was such a, a partisan of, of women's rights. Was he a correspondent with some of the major female writers of this era, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Louisa May Alcott? And that's actually a great question. I don't know if he had a relationship with Stowe. The writer he's most known for working with is, again, Margaret Fuller, okay, who was right. the, the editor for the, and she was, again, very well, well-known well feminist. And then he also worked with uh, the women associated with, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton mm-hmm. uh, and women associated with the Seneca Balls Convention. And a lot of them credited him with being a, a male supporter of women's rights. Um, so those those political activists. But that's a great question. I, I don't know if he talked to or, or worked with Stowe at all. Uh, or Lydia Maria Child. Yeah, no, and this is, and it's funny because, yeah, I don't think I've seen those names come up in the things I've read with his feminist work, mm-hmm. though that's surprising. Fritz Fleischmann and Karen uh, Whaler, who have worked a lot on his feminist dimension, so they'd be two critics to look at Great. who would have an answer to that. Okay. If we're summing up Neil's contributions, what would you say, in your mind, was his most important contribution to literature? I think Neil's most important contribution is sort of breaking down this idea that we have to think of the United States as this national one thing, even though he started out by saying we need to create an American literature. By that, he meant we need to create American literature that is recognizing all the diversity that makes up its regions, that there's a lot of different regions and that even don't essentialize a region. There's lots of differences and always, you know, trying to be more inclusive about he really was about, okay, we have to think of America as not just white Bostonians. We need to think about it in, as having this indigenous heritage, that there are African-Americans, there are women, that we need to have sort of this a very heterogeneous nationalism for Neil. 
And we should give a shout out that on Wikipedia, you can find links to all of his novels, which are in the public domain, all being published before. Great Gatsby, I think, is the one that started getting everybody copyrighted or, or what have you, somewhere in the 1920s. Sorry, literary historians, if I got this <laughs> wrong, but all of Neil's works are in the public domain. And so you can find digital free access to all of them. Carrie, if you were to recommend one of Neil's either novels or stories for somebody who wants to take a look at some of Neil's work, where would you suggest people start? I would suggest if you want a story that sort of gets at his engagement with with Native American backgrounds, there's a story called David Witcher, which is a short story from 1832. The novel that people usually go to is Rachel Dyer, which is the Salem Witch Trials one. It's it's probably the most accessible. Again, he he sort of goes on and on in his in his writing. So, but even just like taking a look at a chapter or two of something like Brother Jonathan is really fun because of that conversational style. He's got a gothic novel called Down Easter that again is about set set in Maine, which is another a fun one. Again, and Neil's someone who's better to take in small doses. It's sort of hard to tackle his novels as a whole. He's also got a really lovely autobiography called Wandering Recollections of a Somewhat Busy Life that sort of goes over. And that's a really good way to get a sense of Neil's voice and his attitude as he sort of looks at his back at his life and, and these episodic moments. Also for his random last claim to fame, children, cover your ears. Do you know where, what was his publication that Neil gets the, the shout out for being the first English language uh, fiction writer to use the phrase son of a bitch in print? Oh yes, yeah, son of a bitch. Is that, it's either on Logan is that in Logan or is that in, ah, I've got that in my notes. Where is Son of a Bitch? <laughs> <laughs> Where indeed? It's in 76. 76. It's in 76, which is in his novel about the American Revolution. Oh, okay. And when did that come out? That came out in 1823. Wow. So early. Okay. okay. Early Noted. So yeah. Uh, and he uses all kinds of slang and all of his other, it's part of his irreverence. He, let's let's he be crude. Did he invent other slang that, that entered the English language? Is he like the Shakespeare of folksy slang of the <laughs> early 19th century? I don't know that he invented it. He just sort of used it a lot. Um, he uses an, um in Yankee, he likes to interrupt people and use fudge a lot. Um, and I don't know that he coined that, but he used it a lot as a way to oh, okay. just come in and be like, oh, fudge, when he was calling someone out on something he thought wasn't true. Oh, Okay. I like that one. That's good. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to use fudge more. Fudge. My, oh, fudge. <laughs> but it, was it meant to be bodlerized for, for the, the true F word or did he actually just mean fudge? That I don't know. Okay. Um, but he did use it a lot as a, as a kind of polite expletive in, in that sort of st- structure, but whether that was a local main thing or if that was just a local, I can't cuss in a magazine thing. I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, better that than what was that 1940s novel where the censors, that publisher changed all the F words to fug, F-U-G, <laughs> like that was going to make it all better. <laughs> I always forget which, uh, which author that was. Um, oh, bad! I'm going to have to go hunt that down. Yeah. Yeah. He was apparently confronted by some old lady fan where she... He says, oh, I'm so-and-so. And And she goes, oh, I know you. You're the person who couldn't spell fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. Yep. 
Good times. Oh, good. This will be my first ever episode that, that gets a language warning on the, uh, on the <laughs> look out on the content. Yeah, absolutely right. Got to keep all the all the people happy. Um, so listeners who want to to check out some of your work, what is something that you have recently published or that you're working on that our listeners should keep an eye out for? So the stuff is probably the closest to things we've talked about here is I have a book called Reading Needs United States. It sort of picks up with this idea of regionalism being at the core of imagining this national identity. And it looks sort of more at a lot of the stuff that was going on in the West and just different perspectives on, again, that sort of inclusive diversity model of of nationalism. So that would be the closest to some of the things we've talked about here. Okay. What is something that somebody else has recently come out with that you would like to recommend to our listeners? In terms of scholarship, there's a book called The Genius of Place, Geographic Imagination in the Early Republic by Christopher Apap that is worth checking out if you're interested in scholarship. Although if you're interested also in writers who are like John Neal, who also sort of focus on region and also are just kind of a little bit out there and breaking convention. There's a writer called Charles Brockton Brown, who wrote a lot of sort of early Gothic fiction. He's got a wonderful novel called Edgar Huntley that sort of works with Pennsylvania history. And uh, he's a writer that um, John Neal was, was a big fan of. And he's sort of a similar writer to John Neal, although his, his novels are a little more coherent. So he'd be someone that I would, I would highly recommend. Edgar Huntley is a really fun read. Great. Carrie Holt, it was wonderful to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining us. This is such a pleasure. And yeah, Maine, it's always a a pleasure to talk about Maine and John Neal's perspective on it. Absolutely. That's our show. If you loved it, tell the world about it. If you didn't, feel free to yell those thoughts into a pillow or write about it in your secret diary that you never share with anyone. Join us again as we ride along with John Adams as he started his legal career, a practice that took him across the province of Massachusetts, including the District of Maine. We plead no contest to the charges that it's a can't-miss episode. That's next time on Mainly History.